0: Good afternoon. Thank you very kindly for coming uh, to the Hudson Institute this afternoon for what I know is going to be a fantastic panel. Among other things, um, a recently published book by senior fellow and colleague uh, Michael Duran. Um, are there copies here? Yes. No, but I know there are copies here, but they're not being sold oh. or something. Oh, oh, they are over there. I, I highly. I highly recommend that uh, that uh, that you buy one, and uh, and and that you get uh, Mike Durant to sign it. Even that'll be fantastic. But thank you very kindly for coming. And um, Mike is only one of the esteemed panelists we have this afternoon. Mission to a uh, uh, distinguished fellow here at Hudson Institute, Walter Russell Mead, um, and to my immediate right, Ray Takei, who's at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Ray has been with us before, uh, and he's also written at the Weekly Standard, where, uh, where I am
1: yes, – Yes, that's right, He reviewed Mike's
0: book, <laughs> the Weekly Standard, uh, a couple of weeks ago, which I highly recommend. Uh, and um, I am also a senior fellow here, as well as a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. And the this ap- this subject of the panel uh, is called The American Moment in the Middle East. And uh, in the light of a uh, newly elected president and uh, his national security cabinet, as he starts to roll it out, I thought it would be an especially interesting time um, to talk about, uh, talk about the history of large America in the Middle East. And I believe as Mike, uh, Mike locates that, it really does start with Eisenhower. And we're going to take that right up to the present uh, to Donald Trump in what will be a fantastic conversation. I'm going to ask Ray to begin. Uh, th- thanks very much. Uh, well, I want begin by congratulating
2: Mike on publishing a terrific book. Uh, it, it is always a genuine privilege to be with Walter. And uh, Lee Smith is here, too. I'll just say a couple of things about the, about the book, which I had a chance to review. And I do think it's a terrific book. And we can maybe open that conversation. I think it's, it's fair to say, if we were turning the clock back to 1953, uh, and all of us were asked to provide Eisenhower with advice, we would all, I think it's fair to say, suggest to him that he should engage with the forces of post-colonial nationalism, where, and particularly with what was at that time, uh, less so today, the pivotal state of Egypt. So in terms of conception of Eisenhower's policy, I suspect that we would all agree with his with his idea that as the Cold War seeps beyond the familiar boundaries of Europe, you have to find alignment with forces of nationalism that are emerging in the developing community. And I think if you kind of think about, and Mike goes through this, some of the concessions that Eisenhower made to Nasser in pursuit of, I guess, what we would call his policy of engagement, to me, they were largely modest. Uh, During Eisenhower's tenure came the Anglo-Egyptian Treaty of 1954, the Heads Agreement, which I actually think from Eisenhower's perspective, that was a sound agreement. The British had 70,000 troops there. They didn't need 70,000 troops there. the there of thermonuclear weapons, missiles, ballistic missiles, heavy bombers, and so on. And it went down to the idea that 4,000 British technicians, which really means British troops, would maintain the base to be used and activated at the discretion of the alliance. I mean, I think Mike and I may have a slightly different different view on the utility of that agreement, but it was a sound Cold War agreement in many ways. Uh, He limited the Baghdad pact, the alliance that he was trying to put to the northern tier states of Iran, Turkey, and Pakistan. Later on, of course, Iraq joined as well. There are a number of mistakes that Eisenhower made. And I think Mike highlights that. Number one, he bought into the argument that in order for the United States, at least in his first term, in order for the United States to be effective in the Middle East, it had to distance itself from Israel. He accepted that argument too readily. It's an argument that, of course, other presidents have accepted as well. Uh, It is a perennial State Department argument. So in that particular sense, he was wrong. And it was an assumption that he later, of course, corrected. His focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, I don't think was entirely misplaced. Because if you kind of think about the Arab-Israeli conflict, during the Cold War, Every decade of the Cold War had an Arab Israeli war, 48, 56, 67, 73. I think to focus on Arab Israeli conflict and resolution of it beyond 73 is to miss the event, namely that that's no longer the most important point in the Middle East. But during the time he did it, there was real concern about interstate conflict, and there was a real concern that that interstate conflict could lead to superpower confrontation as it as it nearly did in 1973. So his priority about emphasizing the Arab-Israeli conflict was right for its time. I don't think it's right for our time. I don't think it has been right for the past 35 years or so. Uh, Finally, it's important to recognize that Eisenhower's policy of engagement toward Nasser lasted about 18 months. It started in June of 1953, and it ended in March 1956, when his envoy, Robert Anderson, came back and suggested that NASA was not likely to cooperate with American policy objectives, then it changes. 18 months. Most administrations, in my experience, don't actually change policy in mid-course. They keep pursuing the same policy, even if that policy is failing. Lyndon Johnson kept bombing North Vietnam, not because he thought it was going to work, because he couldn't think of anything else to do. Uh, So it's rare for an administration to change policy that it itself inaugurated. That's why Eisenhower's uh, uh, change is interesting. Bush would surge when you kind of move from one policy to another one. Is also an example of some sort of intellectual creativity within the same administration. You don't always see that. Uh, so in that sense, Eisenhower should also be credited for seeing something doesn't work and going to wholesale changes of his of his uh, of his perspective assumptions. Uh, I actually don't. I think Eisenhower's handling of Suez was flawed. I know there are a lot of arguments to be, ha- to be said to, to the contrary. Uh, I think he was right to suggest that such invasion was ill thought out. Uh, there are two possibilities what would happen. Either the British and the French would hold the canal and engage the Egyptians in some sort of a prolonged guerrilla warfare, or they would try to essentially have a change of regime and back in, in, in Cairo. How did that Would work? Who did they think they were ill prepared for? Neither of those policies to me were sustainable. And Eisenhower was right that it negatively affected the opinion of many people in the developing community. And it did, and also came at the time of Soviet intervention in Hungary, which allowed the Soviet Union and its many apologists to make the wrong case of moral equivalency between the two blocs. It was a wrong case, but they made it. Uh, Finally, I want to end on what is the legacy of Eisenhower administration policy? In a sense, there isn't one. (laughs) Uh, shortly after Eisenhower left office, Jack Kennedy came in and reversed his policies and began the policy of courting Nasser. Even when Nasser engaged in the Yemen war, he neglected the Arab alliance. And all the way to today, and I think Mike's book has meant to be instructive, we kind of see an administration that makes the same mistakes in a sense that it believes America's adversaries in the Middle East can be propitiated. It minimizes their ideological hostility to the West. It essentially minimizes the importance of alliances, particularly Israel and the Arab alliances as well. And and so the irony of it is, in terms of legacy of Eisenhower, which Mike Mike unpacks, is there isn't one.
0: Uh, and I'll stop there. <laughs> well, that was kind that was, of, you, you left by throwing down a real gauntlet, which I know that Mike is, or I hope that Mike will pick up. Maybe not now in his introductory uh, Remarks, but, uh, but 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 it's I think something. I
3: have to, otherwise nobody will buy a book.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. That that's that. You're on. All right. Uh, Th- thanks very much, Ray. There, there was actually other stuff that I wanted to oh, oh, note, oh, too, sure. but that was re- a really dramatic way to uh, conclude your, your your introduction. So, Mike, if you would. Uh...
3: So uh, thank let me uh, thank you, Lee, for uh, hosting this panel. Uh, thanks uh, to all of you for coming, and uh, Ray, thanks for that. Um, uh, thanks for the review you wrote in the Weekly Standard, and uh, and for agreeing to. Uh, come here and do this. And Walter, thanks to you as well. I appreciate it. Um, so a couple of words about how I came to this book. When, when I was working in the White House uh, in uh, uh, 2006, I had been an academic and, then, and, and thought I knew something. I was teaching uh, um, U.S.'s uh, Middle Eastern Relations at Princeton. And so... Uh, I thought I knew something about um, U.S.-Middle Eastern relations, and then I went to the White House and worked on the topic and realized that I actually knew very little, uh, that there's really quite a gap between an academic understanding of a subject and what you do when you're in the, uh, in the, in, in, in the White House. Um, and I, I learned many things very quickly, but w- one of the things that I learned is that the, the people at the top – um, have uh, very simple ideas uh, about um, uh, uh, about uh, about the world. Every time I say this, I- I've said this many times, and I always get the same response. Oh yeah, you work for George W. Bush. Of course, he had reason. <laughs> it's not. It's it's any any administration. They have they have simple they have simple ideas, and and the reason for that is that they just have an enormous amount of, of of information. The flow of information to the White House is is. Uh, uh, is, is unbelievable. It's a, you know, it's a fire hose, a proverbial fire hose of information all the uh, all the time. Um, and the world is a complex place. The, the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone, is connected to the ankle bone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, if you think about President Obama's Iran policy, his Iran policy has – a relationship with Russia embedded in it, a, you know, assumptions about China embedded in it, assumptions about Israel embedded in it, assumptions about Iraq, which was the biggest issue on the, uh, in the Middle East at the time that he took over, embedded in it, and so on. So they have looked at all these different situations, and they have, they have come up with a theory of the case about how they all interact, and then they, and then they come up with the simple idea. So in the, in, the case of, uh, in the case of Eisenhower, the simple idea was, I'm going to reach out to Egypt, I'm going to co-opt Egypt. I'm going to make Egypt part of the international system. In the in the case of in the case of President Obama, it was I'm going to reach out to Iran. Uh, I'm going to pull I'm going to pull Iran in and make it part of the the system and and uh, and co-opt it. In the case of the Eisenhower administration, that decision uh, to uh, to reach out to Egypt uh, was embedded as as Ray said, or as part of that was this assumption that it was it was necessary for the West in the Cold War for the United States to tack away from its traditional allies in Europe Britain and France and to tack away from from Israel Secretary of State Dulles went to um, went to the Middle East in May of 1953 he comes back and he writes a memo to uh, to Eisenhower in which he says the association in the minds of the people of the region um, of the United States with European imperialism and and Israel is destroying our position in in, uh, in the region. It is urgent. It's absolutely urgent that we that we uh, that we attack this as, uh, assumption that the people have, because Israel and the European uh, and the British and French are millstones around our neck. That's the uh, that's the word he uses. And so for the next uh, however many years, they work to get rid of those millstones. Ray says that uh, Ray just said that uh, that uh, uh, Eisenhower's engagement of uh, of Egypt lasted 18 months. I dated it a little bit differently. Um, The he he's Ray is definitely right that after 18 months there was a there was a serious policy shift. Uh, But the but the. the moment when Eisenhower thinks himself out of that notion, that simple idea that Israel and the Europeans are millstones around our neck, isn't until 1958. So I, I, I say it takes six years to think themselves um, uh, out of that policy. And that's, what the book, that's the story that the book tells. The story tells the, 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 the process by which Eisenhower thinks himself out of the very simple idea he has when he first, uh, 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 when he first takes uh, power. And it wasn't just his idea. It was an idea that was shared by everyone in the foreign policy establishment they all felt that particularly with the, with, the, with, the, with Israel they felt that truman's recognition of israel was was one of the greatest strategic blunders in the history of the United States foreign policy, if not the, if not the greatest, and it totally undermined the American uh, uh, position in the region. And we had to show not just the leaders of the Arab world, but also the Arabs on, on the street, that we were uh, that we would help Arab nationalism against its enemies, the Europeans and the and, and the Israelis, within the limits of what we had to do according to morality and our um, and our interests and so on. Um, uh, uh, so um, I'll just add one more thing. Ray, Ray said he thinks it had no lasting impact. Oh, well, I'll make two points. I think it had I think it had enormous lasting impact. Um, that's why I wrote the book. And uh, and and uh, and secondly, I think it has uh, I think it ha- I think it has implications that go way beyond the, the case that I tell. And I don't draw those implications in the book, so I'll tell you what they are now. Um, uh, number one, the, the lasting impact. Eisenhower's attitude, that Truman uh, created, uh, Truman blundered by recognizing Israel, and it was necessary to pull away, away from Israel. Was like I said, the uh, the assumption of uh, of the foreign policy elite, but especially of Rockefeller Republicans. Uh, Which is what Eisenhower represented, and after Eisenhower comes out of power, there's a split within the Republican Party between those who think Israel is an asset and those who think Israel is a um, uh, is is a liability, and that split exists in the Republican Party down to uh, uh, down to today, in one form or another. Um, It's not as explicit anymore. Uh, the, the, the the feelings were extremely sharp in the early nineteen fifties that Israel is a liability. Today it's it's today it's it's softened to a great extent, but you still have this divide in the Republican Party between you can say the easy way to do it is to say who among the Republicans thought the Iran nuclear deal was a good deal? Or the way they the way they put it, none of them said it was a good deal. There was a there's a whole crew of Republicans who said, Oh, it's a terrible day, it's a horrible day, we should have negotiated better, but only you thing want to that identify anyone right now. Yeah, sure. There's a, that's a, that's James Baker. That's Brent Scowcroft. That's Bob Gates. Uh, you know, um, and and there were a, no, a number of others who remained silent. You can go look up some of the ones that remained silent, right? Uh, those, that's the, the that, those are the those are the intellectual heirs of Eisenhower A. Uh, and, and then you have the ones who said it was horrible, it was terrible, and so on, and that, uh, uh, and and. and it should be rejected. Those are the intellectual errors of Eisenhower B. So I, I think it had great uh, great significance. And then finally, I didn't go into this in the book, but I think it has implications for the Middle East and for beyond. Because there is a strain of thinking in in American foreign policy thinking, which is, I, for lack of, uh, for lack, I am an ex-professor, so I can't help it, a Kantian strain mm-hmm. of thinking, which holds, <coughs> we carry out the right policies we can bring everybody into a universal peace. And that the failure to bring peace to this chaotic system is a result of our own ham-fisted, uh, ham-fisted actions. And so if we, will, if, we will, if we will use our soft power, if we will be more nuanced, if we will reach out in friendship to our, to our enemies, we can bring about the we can bring about the, the, the universal peace, right? This is deep in our culture, and it's on left it's on the left, and it's on, uh, and, and it's on the right. Uh, and so I think this is a test case of a president uh, who was not, by his nature, in, uh, inclined to be a Kantian. I don't think, uh, but he inherited from a foreign policy establishment that was, by the way, packed full of missionaries. The, the, the State Department and the CIA, they were all either missionaries themselves or trained by, by, by missionaries. They had secularized their, their worldview, and they had said to him that if you, if you, if you reach out your hand in friendship, then, then we can calm down the, 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 the whole region. And he thought himself out of it. And that's what, that's, that, to me, is the, is the interesting thing of a, a hard-bitten realist who thought himself out of this position.
0: Uh, th- thanks, Mike. That is very interesting. That is something that I want to mention. That, that Ray had said as well. That the um, that the Eisenhower administration had a different idea, or they changed ideas. And uh, you make the very excellent point that most administrations neither have the time nor the nor the will to do so. And so I hope that's something we'll <clears throat> we'll come back to as we as we talk more. Uh, Walter, if you would uh, if, if you would finish off this round, sure.
4: Um. It is a great book, and I hope you all get a chance to to read it. Um, it's partly a great book because it agrees with my thinking. It. <laughs> uh, and even provides a few useful facts for me, which I always like in a book. Um, I found a couple of points that that were really worth reflecting on. Uh, things that Michael pointed out about the Eisenhower administration about foreign policy thinking I think still mark the way that people approach the Middle East and other regions today <coughs> and one of them is, is what I would sort of call a kind of a naive realism and Mike is is very good at, at taking this on that um, you know I suppose there are we can all think of some political scientists who have this view that sort of that um, Foreign policy, in a sense, is really very simple. There is a national interest, which is both knowable and known, that you can see what it is, and then your job is to to move toward it. And politics does – internal politics doesn't really matter. Your culture, the culture of the people that you're dealing with is not really very important. There is a national interest. We should go for it. Um, But what Mike's book points out, I think, extremely well – is that people don't actually have that clear of an idea what the national interest is at any given moment in time? That politicians, statesmen, leaders, opinion leaders, uh, pundits, and all folks like that have sort of images that they develop, um, pictures. It reminds me a little bit of um, in Proust's uh, A la Recherche des Temps Perdu, the characters have these sort of images of the beloved, and they're pursuing those images, which often have very little to do with the actual person onto whom they're projecting these various qualities. But they nevertheless pursue these illusory loves with tremendous intensity and passion, and that's what makes up their lives. Foreign policy looks very Proustian to me after reading Mike's book, that they had a theory of the case It made sense to them. uh, And based on that theory, they then took steps which they were quite sure were in the national interest, but in fact actually had very, very little to do with what was going on in the minds of the people they were trying to influence or deal with. And then there was a specific kind of an illusion that you see in the Eisenhower administration and I think you can still find a, a, a lot of today in foreign policy, and I would call this kind of the, an Orientalism of the left, or at least an Orientalism of the center. That, as you know, Saeed has, Edward Saeed has written about a kind of an Orientalism as a way in which people in the West have projected certain characteristics and ideas onto realities of people in the Middle East, And then, on the basis of these fairly simplified psychological profiles, construct all kinds of theories about how to deal with them and what they're up to. But normally, this is used as a kind of an ideological weapon uh, against center and and center-right thinking, foreign policy thinking. I think what what here we see operating in the minds of people like Dulles and Eisenhower is another kind of an orientalism that that for example sees the arab the arabs as totally motivated by this unreasoning un, and 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 uncontrollable hatred of israel which then makes it impossible which you can simplify your calculations about how these arabs will respond to things by just okay I do something very simple about Israel, they all go this way. I do something different about Israel, they all go that way. That actually understanding that for these Arab leaders, Israel is one piece. And yes, they have some very strong and negative feelings about Israel, but they're actually thinking about other Arabs, they're thinking about other elements of political dy- dynamism. In some of the work I've done on the Truman administration it became clear to me, for example, that At the end of the day, the Egyptians in the 1948 war preferred the Israelis to the British in terms of who would control the Negev if the Egyptians couldn't have it because they didn't want the British to have for Jordanian territory, which uh, which was then aligned with Britain, to be available as a base for invading Egypt and guarding the Sinai. So there are these simplistic projections of a kind of a stripped-down psychology Onto other people, and then you make policy prescriptions based on these very, very oversimplified, really <laughs> caricatured views. So I thought, again, I thought Mike did a did a terrific job of looking at the psychology of foreign policy, and it's a it's a it's a work of criticism that uh, one needs to do all the time. Because we do, we endlessly project ideas based in our own culture, our own experience, onto other people. And we end up sort of in a hall of mirrors, where we don't really understand the other. It's clear that until very late, Eisenhower had absolutely no idea what motivated NASA. And I would have to say, actually, Kennedy then comes in and repeats many of the mistakes of Eisenhower. that, in fact, from about 1953 to 1963, in some ways, the, the most constant theme in American foreign policy is this effort to win the Cold War in the Middle East by bringing Nasser into an American orbit. And this is, in, in both in the Eisenhower and the Kennedy years, there's a sense that the way to do this is to try to is – to, is to distance ourselves from Israel, failure to understand in both cases that Nasser's objectives were incompatible with U.S. objectives on a much larger scale. So the f- final point I just want to make about the relevance of Mike's book to today is you cannot read his book and not think about policy toward Iran under Obama that um, you can't make the analogy exactly because history doesn't work that way. But there is a sense in which the Obama administration, both with Sunni Arabs and with uh, Iran, has been trying some of the same approaches that very much motivated the Eisenhower administration. And I would argue, actually, they have been frustrated for some of the same reasons that the Eisenhower people. Ended up being frustrated. This is probably, if I'm right, that was the point. In some ways, you really wanted to to bring home to people.
3: I, I, I did. I did want to make that argument, but I um, uh, I felt because, you, as you say, the you know, history has moved on. I felt if I if I tied, I felt that the uh, that the historical argument had a certain integrity, um, uh, and that if I yoked it to a a current policy. Yep. It would it would, uh, it would tarnish, it would just look
4: like a screed then. No, no, like no, that, no. So. A book of history should not be a political pamphlet, and yeah. you're absolutely right. But certainly, I found myself um, reflecting on that. And in some ways, the parallels are very instructive and disturbing. In other ways, I think it points to some differences between the two eras. But it was a really good work of history. Thank you for... For writing it, um, I'm you're, really... you're,
3: You are so insightful. I mean. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm,
4: you know, I'm honored to be your colleague. Oh, that, <laughs> Thank you. That's,
0: that's, uh, that's very, very kind. Sweet. Thank you very much, Walter. And I'm, I'm, I'm That's a, a an excellent place to make a transition. Let's see if we can uh, fill out some of what the title of the panel describes. And if we can, look. I mean, I think that all of you have mentioned in your introductory statements, you brought it to where I want to bring it. If you're talking about Red, you're saying that one of the issues was the Arab-Israeli crisis, and after the Cold War, that no longer mattered. Uh, is, there, um, is there a fixed idea right now that people and Mike and you were talking about? You were talking about how administrations can only handle a little bit of material at any given time. They're not master strategists. There may be master strategists <clears throat> in a particular White House, but that's not really what they're doing from day to day. Um, and and then Walter, as you as you ended speaking about Iran, I'd, I would actually like to bring it uh, bring it up to the present. So Mike, if you could, why don't we just start? What is on? What is the one issue, let's say, that the Trump administration needs to be focusing on? If there's only uh, a very uh, narrow amount of information what are the things that they would need to or maybe not what they need to look at if the eisenhower administration went in thinking about this one thing looking at this one thing what will the trump administration look at and what
3: does it need to look at um uh, I'll, I'll answer in, in two seconds but i just want to say that uh, just to clarify that um, uh, i don't think that there's a difference between having simple ideas and not being a strategist it's just that your strat that strategy ends up being you know w- once people have taken in all the information and, and thought about all the relationships they have they have their, their strategies are based on some very um, on some very simple and straightforward moves okay that's um, and it's very hard to shake people out of those until there's a cataclysm um, about the the Trump administration the the, the key issue and I, I think uh, what I'm one of the things I'm saying in the book is that the, the, there are inherent conflicts in the Middle East that are independent of the United States. If the United States pulls out, the Middle East is at war with itself. The Middle East has been at war with itself since before we got involved, and it's going to be—it's going to be at war with itself since we got out. And it's not a simple war. We we always simplify it to Sunni versus Shiite, Saudi Arabia versus Iran, and so on. These are not meaningless statements, but the but but the reality on the ground is is more um, is is more complex than that, um, and the players on the ground. I, 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 I love the Walter's descriptions. I wish I could have stole them from him about the remembrance of things past and the search for the beloved. Oh, he's like, I, I, I meant to I, thank you for that, and also yeah. from, from Priest to Kant, it's a nice. Oh, yeah, I am. I am. By the way, get that I am everywhere. Uh, Images—they're mine from now on. I hereby put. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, there's a, there's another. I would add one other kind of I think characteristically American um, uh, fallacy or mistake, and that's a solipsism. Um, uh, well, you kind of re- refer, referred to it, Walter, when you said that you know if we move this way, then it makes the Arabs move that way, and if we move this way, they move that way. There's, a, there's an assumption we have that the major players in the region are reacting to us a, a, as, a, as a way of, a, and to our allies, as a way of bargaining with us, so that what the Iranians want right now is a really good relationship with the United States, and that's why what, what they're doing. I have a different view. What all of the actors in the region want to do is to maximize their power against their regional rivals, and they read American policy. They they read American <coughs> policy with an eye to that conflict on on the ground. So, is is the American attitude toward Israel going to help me with my rivals, or is it going to hurt me? In which way, uh, uh, in which way do I have to direct the Americans so as to as to maximize my power in the region? They're all bar, in a sense, to put it another way, they're all borrowing power from us. Uh, in, in complex ways that we often, uh, don't understand. Uh, and, and, there is no way to bring peace to the Middle East. It's not, it, it because the Middle East, are, the Middle Easterns are always going to be fighting with each other. There's always going to be an out group, a set, a, a network of out group that, that are, that are opposed to the order that we represent and there are always going to be external actors who are going to align with that outgroup in order to in order to undermine us so what we have to get used to and, and the american mind doesn't like to think about it this way is perpetual conflict in the middle east now that conflict can be worse and it can be better and we can ma- manage it we can manage it worse or we can manage it better but we have to get our minds around the idea of of maybe not conflict that's too strong because that always implies war but serious competition in in uh, in the middle east um, and the, the the locus of that competition today is the iranian russian alliance that is a, those are our competitors they are doing what they're doing in syria not just not just cuz they want they have a certain vision of syria cuz they want to undermine us putin didn't put his putin didn't put his um, his s200s his s300 his anti aircraft um, uh, his anti-aircraft system in place in Syria because he's fearful that the Syrian opposition is going to develop a large air force and come attack his position. He put his big Russian hand over everything that's going on in Syria so that we can't do that. That was a move against us, a transparent move against us. This is just just one example. Um, the Iranians and the Russians are working all throughout the region to undermine us in in ways subtle and not and and not so subtle and. We have convinced ourselves that, you know, if we just if we just say the right magic words to them about how we want to compete against, uh, how we want to cooperate with them against our common enemies, we will unlock the we will unlock the uh, the, the 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 new system, not for Kantian peace, but for. Uh, cooperation toward our strategic goal of destroying uh, destroying ISIS and it's wrong, uh, 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 and the Trump administration needs to come in understanding that that we are in this con- we are we are in a competition. There's nothing we can do to make that competition go away. We have to win it, uh, uh, and uh, you can win it in many different ways. That's what they have to figure out.
0: Um, Ray, if I can ask you, Mike talks about he's saying that we're often solipsistic. <clears throat> the way we look at it, is it wrong then to? Perceive that the Iranians and the Russians are looking at us in the Middle East, especially in Syria. You've, you're a you're an Iran expert. You've written an extraordinary amount of uh, great stuff on Iran. So, do you think that the Iranians are looking at us? Are the Iranians looking at the Sunnis? Are the Iranians looking at the Saudis? What's the what what what, what how do you see this?
2: Well, I, I'll put the Middle East in the context of Eisenhower. If if you recall. 1958 in the middle east was called the year of the revolutions uh you had series of regimes being changed whether it's iraq whether syria jordan and 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 saudi arabia under stress and it was at that time that malcolm kerr uh coined the phrase called the arab cold war where you had conservative arab states versus what were called radical republics led by nasser And Eisenhower actually made a choice. With the Eisenhower Doctrine, the idea was that we would rehabilitate our alliances, including, actually, the British alliance. People tend to (laughs) neglect the fact that after Britain left the Suez, the Arab East, it remained a Gulf power for another 20 years. Uh, And essentially, we'd be trying to work against our adversaries. So I think the new Trump administration is coming into a Middle East that's similarly polarized and has its own Cold War. This is not so much a Cold War between conservative monarchies and Arab republics. This is a Cold War that's underpinned by sectarian identities increasingly, whether it's the Shiite community led by Iran and in alliance with with the the Russians against Saudi Arabia and various American allies. Uh, So it has to essentially take sides in this particular Cold War, as Eisenhower did, and then figure out what what you can do. And if it identifies Iran as its principal adversary, then I would suggest it shouldn't make the mistake that the last two administrations did. The last two administrations, and I would say that about Bush and certainly the Obama administration, they didn't have an Iran policy. They had an arms control policy. Uh, And I'm not suggesting that the JCPOA should be retained, because I always described it as the worst arms control agreement in history of American arms control diplomacy. And I always say to my friends, if there's one worse, tell me which one it is, and we can begin the conversation. Uh, so, the, it, But you have to have an Iran policy. And once you figure out that is, then arms control will fit into that, as opposed to an arms control policy that defines your Iran Iran policy. Uh, so you know, what what is your approach to the Islamic Republic? Do you want to push back on it in the region? What does that mean? Uh, it seems to me that the policy of the United States uh, toward Iran <laughs> should be perhaps a bit different than Eisenhower's approach toward Nasser. We should have an attempt to weaken the Iranian regime. And you weaken it at home, you weaken in the region, and you have to figure out how the arms control agreement helps you. So when you think about Syria, uh, the question which you how do you weaken the Iranian-Russian uh, alliance in Syria? When you think about rehabilitation and reconstitution of Iraq, you have to figure out how do you excise the Iranian influence from that. So your Iran policy will in some ways define your regional approaches, and it defines who your friends are and who your adversaries are.
0: Um, Walter, if I can ask you more generally about uh, about <clears> that something, and in particular the uh, when Mike was talking about uh, the Russian uh the Russian-Iranian project in the region. Look, I mean, I, I, as far as I know, every president who's come to uh, – who's come to the White House since Reagan has tried a a Russian reset. A lot of people I know are concerned that the president-elect has seemed to be open toward Putin. Is this a, a good thing? Is it a problem? At what point will he see – at what point will he see uh, – see it the way Mike sees it? Or or. Will he not see it the way Mike sees it? We'll actually be able to work with the Russians on some things, and we'll be opposed to the Iranians in other places, and, and that's okay because we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time.
4: Interesting. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about the, the utter futility of writing about American foreign policy. <laughs> and the, the thing that has led me to think about this is the most successful his, uh, essay in the history of writing about American foreign policy. Thanks. George Kennan's uh, sources of Soviet conduct. And, you know, at the end of the Cold War, the entire United States is dancing with glee and saying, Kennan has been vindicated, containment worked. Uh, But everybody immediately forgot the whole point of Kennan's essay, which if you go back and you read it, it really is, look, our problem with these people is not actually that they are communist, it is that they are Russian. And uh, that, in fact, there were forces in Russian history and Russian culture that, for example, Stalin needed an enemy, that the conditions under which he could hold power in Russia were such that you actually required a mobilization of society against an external en- enemy, and that given that the traditional American approach of trying to find the win-win solution, the press the reset button, which is what people were urging Truman to keep doing in '46, uh, wouldn't work because that wasn't wouldn't address the issue and the Russians would, would simply become more suspicious as you tried to become more conciliatory and uh, and so it, it's fascinating to me that for 20 years well, we've we've now had four American presidents in a row who who've thought to start to start their relationship with Putin by by getting an understanding whether it's the soul gaze into his eyes Clinton's business-like approach, whether it was um, uh, Obama's reset or now some of the things one has heard Mr. Trump say, President-elect Trump say in the campaign trail. So there there is something going on there. However, when I look at the Trump team and so on, I am actually a little bit less impressed by all of the sort of press talk about oh, my goodness, it's the Russia apologists, it's the Russia enablers. Um, You know, I read Mike Flynn's book, and it's actually, I would say, it is a passionate call to arms against the evil Russo-Iranian alliance that is seeking to break American power. Um, Okay, he went to a dinner with Vladimir Putin. He attended an RT event. Um, Yeah, he did. Um, But, sorry? Uh, He attended an RT event. But it doesn't actually, I I read the man's work, and he does not sound like a Russia apologist to me. So my guess is that we're seeing a little, and and, and actually, again, the pattern of the president-elect's announced appointments for these high posts Russia skeptics and Russia hawks are pretty high up on that list. So my my sense would be that that we may be in the presence of a terrific head fake, um, or rather another thing of saying, you know, look, I I can make a deal, or if you don't make a deal, I have other things I can do. But I'm not actually at this point worried that that the cabinet that President-elect Trump is appointing is some kind of a pro-Russian cabinet. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll find out. But I do think that even for those who, who think that uh, uh, Trump is going to have a sort of a pro-Russian or a pro-Putin administration, Iran and the Middle East really are the issue, because even the people in the Trump entourage who are, who have not distinguished themselves by anti-Russian talk have been pretty consistently both anti-Iran and anti-JCPOA. So it's not, this is, and and the fact that Russian policy is bound up so closely with Iran's policy in the Middle East, I think really limits the scope for some kind of grand U.S.-Russian understanding. I do think if you take a step back, it is clear that both the United States and Russia share an interest in um, the defeat of Sunni jihadism, and that both the United States and Russia are bound up by some significant concerns about the balance of power in East Asia. And that those those two elements of common concern could at least theoretically lead to certain, Policies in common or, or interests in common, out of which certain initiatives could grow. But I think you do have to start with the Russians, as Kenan suggested, which is that you first have to, uh, what is, you know, where where Lenin talks about you press with your bayonet as long as you find no resistance, you keep pressing. When you encounter steel or resistance, you stop. This is the first the first step to a reset with Russia is a sort of a credible stop, at which point then one can begin to talk in a businesslike and clear way about where there might be some points of common interest. We did manage to negotiate fruitfully in some cases with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, but I think it was only by keeping that principle in mind.
0: Mike, I'm going to ask you to continue... Uh, to follow up on Walter's statement, and also, especially since Walter uh, raised uh, canon, let's think about it in terms of the Cold War, and if you can also what, – what would this new administration need to know about uh, Eisenhower policy in the Middle East, about Eisenhower's Cold War policy, uh, and, and, and your book? What does this administration need to get most – from the Eisenhower years to address the different things that are happening with Iran, with Russia right now.
3: Um, uh, uh, let me just start by saying I agree with everything that uh, uh, that w- actually everything that Ray said and, the, and that uh, and that Walter said, and I I, I think that um, in one of the debates, I think it was perhaps the last debate, I'm not sure, between uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, uh, uh, Trump said, you know. The Russians, Putin doesn't respect Clinton, but he's going to respect me. And I, I, took that as him saying he didn't go on to make the to make the argument that he's gonna he's gonna see in me somebody who's who has who um, whose threat to use force is credible, and therefore he's going to respect me. He, he didn't make that argument, but that's the way I always that, that's the way I always read it. Um, the 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 thing that the, the number one thing I, I think we have to do is grim up. Uh, to grim up, uh, you, uh for, to give an example from Eisenhower, um, you know when when Eisenhower sent the troops into Lebanon in '58, we now remember this as as the uh, as the least. Uh, you know, as the most successful foreign intervention ever, there were only two soldiers who died in the whole, um, uh, in, in the whole operation, one of whom died, I think, by accident, and one was, was shot by a sniper f- uh, fire. And so it's a scene, uh, um, uh, it's held up, especially by those people who want to say that, you know, Eisenhower, um, Eisenhower didn't believe in using force and a light touch and so on and so forth um, as, a, as, as the way to do an intervention. But when Eisenhower was given the order to go in, it didn't seem like that to him, uh, and he writes in his memoir that this was the second most difficult decision he ever made. The most difficult being the D-Day uh, invasion, because he felt it could go very wrong. It could go very wrong in terms of the, of what was going on on the ground, and it could go very wrong with the Soviet Union. It was a big it was a big risk. But he thought the risks of of inaction were worse than the risks of uh, of action. And when he met with uh, the venerable Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn said to him, Mr. President, to, to, he, he, he went to get, you know, to, to consult with the, or he brought him to the White House to consult with the, uh, with the congressional leaders about uh, what he was about to do. Uh, and Rayburn said, Mr. President, I'm worried that this, could go, that this could go very wrong. I'm worried that we could antagonize the Arabs, and I'm worried that we could antagonize the Soviet Union. And I don't see any obvious way to bring this to, uh, uh, to an end. And I and Eisenhower. And this is what I mean by grim up. Eisenhower said, "Oh, it's going to go very wrong. I can guarantee that." Right? He said, "The question is, does it go wrong when we uh, uh, when we behave in a Munich-like fashion?" Or does it go wrong when we behave by showing the world that we're going to support our allies and punish our enemies? And he said, in my in my view, it's much more important to shore up our allies. In other words, I mean, in terms of political science terms, we would say we have to worry about our extended deterrence. If we don't take action, if we don't honor our red line, right? Then we are going to undermine the power of all of our allies who uh, who are going to, who who will be willing to take uh, tougher positions against our enemies if we don't uh, if we if if we don't back them up. Right, uh, and so I, I think we just have to start from that. I, 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 do, I, 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 I was uh, uh, kind of went like this when I read uh, Eisenhower's words, where he says. It's going to go badly. I can guarantee you that. That is not a statement that politicians like to uh, uh, li- like to make. But this is the beautiful thing about Eisenhower. He was very steely-eyed. I, uh, I think he had no illusions about uh, uh, about anything. And that's one of the reasons why it's interesting to watch him think through all of these uh, all of these things. Um, I forgot the second part of your, part of your question. Listen, what What is it that they
0: need to know? Let's say from your book. But certainly from the eyes. Oh, the other thing from the oh, well, the, the other better.
3: thing from the book, uh, the two two other things from the book are one, the is, the Arab-Israeli conflict is not the center of gravity in in, in the region. Uh, I think when I'm looking at the pics that we're getting, uh, I think that we that there's little doubt. I think this is going to going to be the go down in history from the from the first indications, at least. We we'll have to wait and see uh, as the as the the American administration that was least inclined to see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as the center of gravity in the, in, in the region. Okay. L- l- actually, l- let me rephrase it then, Ray. I'm going to ask you to follow,
0: but i want to give Mike a quick chance. Look, when, when Walter was saying – you know, uh, Kennan was saying the issue is not that they're communists, the issue is that the Russians. At what point – at what point, if ever, does the Trump administration say, you know, we know the Iranians are a big issue and we don't like the JCPOA, but there's another problem here as well. And we didn't even see this until we started looking at the Iran deal and started pulling apart different issues, <clears throat> all this other stuff that's baked in. And this one crazy thing that's baked in is the Russians. So your book is your book is, is Eisenhower dealing with the Middle East, a Cold War Middle East, and one of the plays
3: is about the Soviets. To what extent do we... Well, I, I, think, I think President Obama is, is not entirely wrong when he says that Putin is weak. Um, uh, and that, and that he doesn't represent that the, the, the Cold War is over. I, I think Russia is a threat to us. I think Russia <coughs> is trying to undermine us. Uh, I think it's working with Iran to uh, to undermine us. But there are real limits to what they uh, to what they can do, and they cannot survive a serious competition with us, whether economically or militarily, should we decide to compete. Right, and one of the great ways to compete is to take out from under them the Iranian platform on which their power rests. I mean, what they're doing in Syria—the number one, their number one interest in in the Middle East is propping up the Assad regime, and they share that with the Iranians. But they've made a deal whereby they provide the air cover, and the Iranians provide the forces on the ground, both Iranian and and, and militias right if we if we if we cut that platform out from uh, out from underneath them they are they are severely weakened and if we were to do it in combination with say uh serious economic <laughs> sanctions on the basis of what they're doing in the middle east and in the ukraine right uh, it's a whole different relationship then you know donald trump donald trump can put vladimir putin in a loving embrace and kick him at the same time and that would be a, a very different kind of relationship than the one we have right there's a lot of people that say that looking at uh
0: <laughs> Looking at the relationship in in Syria, especially between uh, Iran and Russia, it's like, well, this can't work. The interests are different. They're going in different directions. It doesn't make sense. It'll be easy to wedge them apart. If you can des- if you can describe a little bit, uh, if you can describe a little bit, why are the Russians there? I mean, it's it's not just because they're not making a lot of money from Assad, right? So why are they there? Why are they partnered with the Iranians? Uh- It seems to me that uh, this
2: latest episode of Russian imperial venture makes less sense as you kind of think about it. The costs to me are obvious, the benefits are not. I mean, during the Cold War, the Russians, the Soviets, valued those bases because they could track American submarines. They're not tracking American submarines. Uh, I think it's essentially an attempt by the Russians to project their power, to deflect attention from domestic inadequacies, and essentially enlarge the Russian sphere of influence. I mean, when you kind of think about the Russian definition of how the Cold War ended, they think they won the Cold War because they got rid of communism. They got rid of all the stands and all the burdens that the Soviet empire imposed on them, and they can become more discerning about their influence. The Russian-Iranian alliance is, to be fair and, and to be sure, is, is rather incongruous and is growing at the same time, which makes it unusual. Both parties tend to have a very stereotypical cultural view of each other. So the Iranians kind of think of Russians and uncrewed drunks just down from trees. And the Russians think these guys don't know what centrifuges they could catch up on and eat it. Uh, So they both both start out with cultural stereotypes against each other. Uh, But the level of cooperation between the two parties has grown enormously. And people tend to focus on the Syria aspect of it. They tend to focus on even the arms delivery aspect of it, S-300s and so on. There is a whole nuclear aspect of it uh the russians are getting back into the iranian nuclear industry iranian nuclear scientists are being dispatched to russia once again for training i think 3 400 class uh, by, uh, per class they go out there so the level of cooperation is more strategic than economic, because they both are economically competitive, in a sense. I mean, the Russians wouldn't want Iranian oil to get to Europe in a depressed times. But the strategy aspect of this tends to conflict with economics, negating the argument of economic determinism that some historians had in the 1960s to describe the Cold War. Uh, how to deal with Iran, to, I mean, I, I go back to Truman administration. Uh, Dean Acheson, to paraphrase Dean Acheson about the Soviet Union. Uh, maybe apply to Iran, he used to say that uh, the Soviet Union is like an old-fashioned penny-slot machine. You can get something out of it by shaking it violently, but there's no point of talking nicely to it. Uh, so you kind of <laughs> think, think about it in, in, in that in that particular sense. Uh, but again, the only thing I would say this administration should defy the predecessor of its past, uh, namely actually have an Iran policy as opposed to an arms control approach, uh, and i think the discussion about what to do with the deal what not to do with it how to get out these are important conversations but they should be embedded in a larger discussion about in iran and a larger discussion about american priorities in the middle east that michael's talking about
0: well let, let me ask let me ask walter uh, let me ask walter that about american priorities in the middle east and the fact that america's in the middle east at all i mean is there any sense in which uh, the obama administration underscored or said you know what, actually, America does not, need, does not need that big a footprint in the Middle East. It gets us into lots of trouble. It's not that fun. There's no upside politically. There's no real upside strategically. Or have we seen uh, a mis- mistaken assumptions? Let's see it like that.
4: Well, it's, it is – I think the American debate over Middle East policy has obviously become much more polarized since 9 and in all kinds of different ways, on the one hand – you have a lot of people since 9 one who would argue that the Middle East is the most important place for American foreign policy because it's where the biggest threats are. And you know, if you ask – if you try to make a list of a place where people are actively trying to kill Americans and do as much damage to us and our friends as they can, where is that place? They'll tell you it's the Middle East. This view is, is I think, pretty heavily represented among some of the president-elect's uh, advisors. And so you'll hear a lot about ISIS from him and from people around it. Um, then you'll have another group of people who would, would make the case that, you know, thanks to fracking um, and American oil movement, Energy independence. The Middle East is actually less important to the United States. You know, in the old days, when the if the Saudis or the Iranians or others were mad at us, they could jack up the price of oil, put us into a depression, and so managing that relationship was clearly a vital interest of the United States. That doesn't seem to be as true anymore. You can have the entire region burning down and in ruins with hundreds of thousands of dead and millions of refugees, and the price of oil is just kind of slowly sinking. So um, you can get an argument from that, that the United States should be paying less attention in the Middle East is a place that's just not a very happy place, not going to be a happy place, and thankfully not a place we need to deal with very much. <coughs> um, myself, I tend to think that the, that we do retain very important strategic uh, interests in the Middle East. Again, you can go back to the Eisenhower years when people talked about the oil in the Middle East in those days. They weren't really talking about a physical resource for the United States. (coughs) It was, how do you keep the Marshall Plan recovery going in Europe without Middle East oil? You can't. How do you keep the Japanese economy growing uh, without Middle East oil? You can't. That I think is still the case today. If, the, if um, the flow of oil from the Middle East were to were to stop for some reason, or the price were to go up hugely, we might still have plenty of oil in the United States. But uh, you know, imagine a, a, a financial crisis in Europe, a financial crisis in Japan, depression brought on. Imagine what Putin's resources or Iran's resources would be. If they were getting 200, 300 dollars a barrel for oil, uh, what this would do to the American economy, to the American financial system, uh, to the world economy, to world politics—it's pretty chaotic. So it seems to me that actually the United American foreign policy cannot pivot away from the Middle East, and that still leaves a lot of questions open about, you know what is the way to engage and what's the depth at which we should engage. But I would also say, by the way, that the the um, another factor that people don't talk about very much, but which is very important, is that in world politics, is that um, other powers are well aware that the United States Navy, which under peaceful times protects the free flow of oil around the world, In time of war, that same navy could interrupt the flow of oil to certain parts of the world. So that if China were to, to, just to take one hypothetical example, if China were to decide that the time had really come to challenge the American order in the Pacific in a military way, um, those oil tankers might stop showing up in Shanghai Harbor very quickly. And that would have a tremendous effect On the Chinese economy and on China's ability to wage an expansionary policy, so the ability of the the American ability then to both assure or alternatively to choke off the oil supply to the world is a pretty fundamental element of whatever thing we call the Pax Americana. Um, And finally, I think the other. The other thing – we're starting to see that a little bit – to erode a little bit under the Obama administration – is that as long as the United States was committed to being the kind of paramount external power in the Middle East, competition among other powers for influence and allies within the Middle East uh, was dampened so that – If you you were to imagine a truly post-American era in the Middle East, you would see, for example, the Japanese-Chinese rivalry being projected into the Middle East as each of those countries would seek to assure oil supplies by making favorable deals with different countries. There would be pro-Chinese, pro-Japanese factions within different Middle Eastern countries, perhaps between them, other things connected to that rivalry. So you would see a kind of a magnification and an intensification of of global great power rivalries then kind of imported into what is already perhaps the most volatile region of the world. None of this looks good. I think that the sort of likely outcome that you would see would be the Middle East becoming the kind of global Balkans of a new, a new world disorder that really did have the potential for something like a 1914 in it. And so all of these considerations, I think, have, have helped to ensure that from really the Truman administration to the present day, the united states on the whole in a bipartisan way though with many differences of strategies and emphasis has retained the conviction that it's it's a vital american interest to ensure at least within some kinds of limits a certain type of order in the middle east i i think i would still argue very strongly that that remains the case for a Trump administration and probably for his successors.
0: Mike, uh, I, I want to open it up to. Uh, th- thank you very kindly, Walter. I want to open it up to uh, a <clears throat> questions in a moment. But, Mike, I want to ask. Uh, I want to ask you one question, um, and and you can. I, I don't know if you were going to address what Walter said as well, but 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 I wanted to ask. Look, I mean, one of the things that 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 your book looks at, and that one of the things you spoke about is the Eisenhower administration thought that thought that Truman had made a catastrophic strategic mistake by recognizing Israel. Clearly, we've seen with the Obama administration, there's been uh, – I, I uh, the relationship, of course, is still uh, vital and significant, but a, a downgrading, say. If you can give um, some sort of – not historical analogy, but if you can say, looking at both what happened after Eisenhower – um, not just at the end of his administration, but after Eisenhower, looking at Kennedy, then looking from then on, how do you think the Trump administration is going to look at Israel? Is there any analogy? Is there a way to see this, or what do you what do you think?
3: Uh, yeah, sure. I, um, well, let me answer your question directly. And then okay. I'll just say one right. thing in response to what, uh, sure. or just reinforcing what Walter said. Um, w- uh, historically, we've been divided, Middle East. Experts uh, in Washington have been divided into two groups: those who divide the world into two groups, and those who don't. No, the the the, uh, the uh, uh, those who think that Israel is a liability, and those that think it's an asset. Uh, the ones who think it's a liability think that the uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict it's getting some kind of uh, peace process, we now call it. They, they didn't call it that in Eisenhower's time, but that was the idea they had. Um, will not just dampen down the tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean; it will have this um, almost miraculous uh, reverberation around the whole region and improve the U.S. strategic position in the uh, in the uh, in the whole region. The, the The others think that, which really only come in after Eisenhower, as as I was saying a minute ago, Eisenhower B, think that the Arab-Israeli conflict is a um, is a local conflict in the eastern Mediterranean doing something to damp it down is a good thing, uh, uh if, if you can, but if you can't, it's not necessarily gonna, it's not going to have any kind of, um, really severe impact on the, uh, on the U.S. position in the region as a, um, uh, as, as a whole. As a result of that, there's, there's been a kind of tendency, and because we are solipsistic, and we are in a bubble here, uh, kind of, you know, the the actual conflicts on the ground in the Middle East are very far away from Americans, so they, they get our discussion about the Middle East becomes like, uh, you know, a very symbolic, and we start arguing about our differences with each other on the basis of what we perceive to be going on in the Middle East. You get these pendulum swings where, you know, Truman recognized Israel, and it was the biggest disaster ever. And then Eisenhower says, we have to counter that. We have to put balance back, so we move back. And you can see the pendulum kind of going back and forth, almost from administration to administration. Some of the pendulum swings are greater than others. The pendulum swing from uh, uh, Truman to Eisenhower was great. The pendulum swing from Nixon to Carter was was great. The pendulum swing from uh, from Bush to Obama was great. And Obama's Obama's strategy was almost the, was almost the, the not Bush strategy, starting with Bush's position toward toward Israel. Um, I think the pendulum is swinging back I, uh, on on the Israel question. I think the Trump administration is going to be the most pro-Israel um, administration ever, uh, and that's the that's what I'm that's what I'm hearing. Through the through through my contacts and it's gonna it's going to it's going to lay a model down for a new way of approaching the Middle East in that with regard to that issue. The thing I want to say about um, uh, what Walter uh, what what Walter said um, is just one one very simple thing, uh, and that's that another lesson to learn I think is that we have a tendency when we talk about the Middle East to talk about it. Issues as separate and just as disconnected from each other. So we have a, a policy toward the Iranian nuclear uh, thing. We, uh, we have a, a Syria policy. We have a peace process policy uh, and, and so on. Um, and we tend to talk, it, it's amazing, I think it's part of this missionary legacy we have, as if we're in the Middle East to do good work. Right, we're not there looking after American interests. We're trying to make the world a better place. So it amazes me how many of our discussions about Syria start with, "How do you solve Syria?" Right? Oh, you can't solve Syria. Can you solve Syria? Can you not? It doesn't start with the question of what are U.S. interests. If you start with this notion that there's going to be conflict, there's going to be competition, and that we have enemies that are going to be competing with us and with our with our allies, then you then you look at the region not as a series of separate issues that are disconnected from each other uh, and that each one needs to be solved in its own terms. But you look at the pattern of power around the region. So you start with the Iranian alliance system, which is Iran, increasingly the government of Iraq, uh, a certain segment of the Kurds, the government of Syria, Hezbollah, and to a certain degree Hamas, the Houthis in, in, in Yemen, and so forth. And you begin with that picture in your mind. You say, how do I attack? That picture. And that leads to a very different kind of policy than the, than the one that we have, which is kind of piecemeal and incoherent. Um, thank you. I'm going to open it up to questions now. If you would wait, I believe that
0: there are many microphones, so you just wait till someone comes with a microphone. Shoshana, did you have, if you can come up here to the front? Shoshana, if you would introduce yourself as well. Thank you. Shoshana Bryan, Jewish Policy Center. This has been a very state based discussion, and I guess Eisenhower only had states to deal with. Could you talk about the role of ideology in this? Among the states, you have ideological divisions. Among the groups, you have ideological divisions. And I would like to hear you discuss what some of them are and how the U.S. should proceed along those lines.
3: Uh, Mike, would you like to start with that? Um, uh, Yeah, it's a very state-based – on my end, it's been a very state-based discussion because I think that's where you begin in in the Middle East. I would – distinguish my own thinking from a lot of the other things that goes on out there uh, by saying, let's start with the states and talk about the ideologies second or third, and religion second or third. The states are very clever, sly entities, and they have all kinds of ways of using these religious conflicts and ideological conflicts to their uh, uh, to their advantage. And the minute we start – the minute you start looking at the Middle East and say, oh, it's a Sunni-Shiite conflict, that exists, it certainly exists, absolutely. But Iran has no problem getting over the Sunni-Shiite conflict when it wants to, say, make an alignment with Hamas. Right? No problem at all. I'd like, if possible, if Walter, you would like to venture uh, an answer as well, since you
0: raised the issue when Cannon says it's no, the problem is not that the Soviets, the problem is they're Russians. So, I mean, if you you, you don't have to, but if you'd like to –
4: Well, I I think I I would say that, um, you know, culture is is a real part of it, but one of the reasons why foreign policy types maybe stick to states is because we're thinking, to begin with, about the policy of the American state. Uh, What can the American government do and not do? I actually, you know, there are a lot of people who would like to see the U.S. government essentially um, become also a collection of of quasi-NGOs, quangos, um uh, national endowment for democracy and so on and sort of fun things fun state activities that we say aren't state activities in order to engage with civil society i tend to think that 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 would actually be left to best gen to genuine civil society actors and that they and that one can distinguish between the foreign policy of the american state which is going to be mostly dealing with state actors and actors that they influence and who influence them, and then the foreign policy or the foreign stance of, the, of American society, which is a much broader thing and historically has included things like missionaries, education, and all. And if we think about a place like, you know, if we think about the situation in the Middle East now where uh, the conflicts, uh, where non-state actors, are not producing stability, happiness, and joy, we would actually like to strengthen states, I think, to some degree in the Middle East. So, you know, I, I, people are always talking about how non state actors are gaining and the state is losing influence. I actually argue that go back to 1900, states were much less powerful than they are today. At that time, the United States didn't even have a central bank. Um, J.P., the House of Morgan, functioned as our central bank. You had private fortunes that were actually larger than the U.S. annual federal budget. Um, And you look at the sort of flows of government finance and compared it to non-state activity and government spending, the government's role in society is actually much smaller than it is now. So I think in some ways, uh, states are actually more powerful than they were 100 years ago. My guess is that we're actually going to continue to see an increase in state power rather than a decrease.
2: Can i just say briefly yeah, sure. one thing about this? Because I think Kenan was wrong to differentiate between communism and Russians. Uh, there's a book by Mel Lefler, Soul of Mankind, that how serious the Russians' leadership during the Soviet era took the communist nonsense – and they were animated by an ideology whose application they thought was universal, The Central Africa, authorities and so on, which is more than any. You can say the same thing about when Eisenhower dealt with Arab military leaders, whether it was NASA and others, he dealt with those who were interested in power and less about ideology. And ideas were means of advancing your, your claims. Uh, nobody understood what baptism was. I mean, try reading anything that anything. Try reading what constitutes baptism. Uh, But I think there are, in case of the Iranian case, to some extent, Islamism and Iranian nationalism or national chauvinism coincide. Uh, The Islamic Republic was not the first Iranian government to think about Lebanon and mobilization of Shia. The Shah did that with Amal and so on, uh, trying to make inroads into Iraq. The difference between Shah's nationalism and Islamic Republic's Islamic nationalism, if you want to call it that, is that Shah understood that Iranian interests can best be advanced in the region, Iranian hegemony can best be ad- advanced in the region in conjunction with American power. Uh, while the Islamic Republic views, for ideological reasons, uh, that the American presence has to be rejected on two grounds one is the north south, you know, so sort of exploitation of the region by an industrial power. Second, clash of civilization grounds, that essentially this is an unacceptable intrusion into Islam's domain. So there's a clear ideological tinge to it. And one thing that Americans understand most poorly, I think, is ideological regimes. Because they always think that there are, that pragmatism can overweight ideological reasoning ideological regimes revolutionary regimes do silly things in 1960s china would give assistance to countries that high, had had a higher gdp than china did uh, albania uh, because it was important for them to have a presence in albania why <laughs> uh, so I, I i think americans tend to given that our politics are not as ideological despite what's often said misunderstand how those who put premium on ideology, even if it comes at the expense of what we would call pragmatic considerations.
3: Mike, did you want to say Just, you just a caveat. By the way, I I think that what, uh, what uh, Ray just said was very wise. Uh, but I, I just wanted often, to. Often. Oh, uh, everything Ray has said has been extremely wise, in, in, including the last statement. Sound. Well, not all. So often. <laughs> I, I just wanted to clarify that, uh, that to – in answer to Shoshana's question, I, I think the analysis begins with states. There are – I mean, obviously, there are ideologies and religious ideologies that need to be taken into consideration, but, for example, ISIS, clearly an ideological movement. Uh, the reason we haven't been able to defeat – we, the greatest military power on earth – in a coalition with 60 other actors, which include the other greatest, many of the other greatest military powers on Earth, can't defeat 40,000 nasty guys with pickup trucks and machine guns is because of the state question. Because everyone in the region is reading the conflict with ISIS against the the, the, the against the background of the struggle for regional order between the Iranian alliance system and everybody else, and what they see is what what the United States war Against ISIS is offering them when the dust settles is a new order in the region dominated by Russia and Iran. Until we send a message to all the states in the region that that's not what we're aiming to do, we're not going to have serious allies to defeat these guys. Yeah, I I, I see what you're saying. Um,
1: uh, Doug, did you have a. Um, Doug Fife, a fellow here at Hudson. Uh, Terrific (coughs) discussion. Thank you all for it. One of the points that was made several times was how persistent, through many administrations, the view was that Israel is the center of gravity, I think is the way um, Mike Duran put it. And this idea that if we adjust our policy toward Israel, it will have major effects on the attitudes of arab countries toward us which is a point that walter was emphasizing i mean that goes back a long way all of you on the panel have pretty much said that's a wrong notion and yet it's not only a historically important notion it it survives today and uh, when uh, there've been discussions in the press that Um, the president-elect is talking to General Mattis uh, about being Secretary of Defense, and many people have highlighted the general's comments that uh, basically along those lines. He said, you know, every day when he was working at CENTCOM, it was uh, a problem for him that the United States was viewed as unfairly friendly to to Israel. I'd be interested in your reflecting on if you think this is such a wrong idea, why is it so persistent?
0: Uh, well, I have my own view on what General Mattis was saying. So, and, and you guys can answer, what, what is he saying? He was head of Sencom. There are all sorts of Arab officers who are coming through. If I'm trying to finish my sandwich in the cafeteria, that someone wants to keep screaming in my ear about the problem is the Israelis, then that's a hassle. That's what happens. They keep coming in and they keep complaining because that's the Arab nationalist position. And it has been for 70 years. And I'm not sure if that's going to go away anytime soon. It's from reading the papers. If you're asking what the larger strategic issue is behind that, Mike, if you'd like to answer that. I mean, But, uh, but again, I, I read that comment in very, I mean, General Petraeus said the same thing coming out of there. I, I would imagine it's a huge pain to be, to be working there and have the Arab officers coming through again and again and again. Um. I,
3: um, uh, th- this is a subject about which uh, we could d- devote a, 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 a book twice the size of my book. Uh, <coughs> I'll just make two points and, 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 and leave it at that. But it really, I, we could go on about this very deeply. One, The one point I would make is that on the American side, American politicians – the first foreign policy issue that they have to have an answer to uh, is Israel. Maybe this, maybe 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 in some cases the second. But before they even look at a map of the world, they're being asked by their constituents, by their donors, what's your what's your position on Israel? What's your position on Israel? What's your position on Israel? So it 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 is a central. The question of Israel, support for Israel, is central to our politics, right? So there's a tendency to bleed over, to assume that anything that is so politically central must be strategically significant. If it's, if it's politically significant, it must be. And it's simply not the case, right? But that's it. Then, uh, then an, uh, another issue, and I, I'll, just, I'll just put out a thesis to you. And here's my thesis. Hostility to Israel in the Arab world is a function of anti-Americanism rather than the reverse. So our tendency Americans think that we are a kind of a blank slate, we're an ecumenical white noise, right? And we come into the Middle East and then we get attached to the Jews and that's what angers the and that's what angers the Arabs. Now, there's there's a deep hostility to Zionism in Israel in the Arab world and in the Muslim world in general. Anybody who spent five minutes there knows that and so on. But I would say this to you who are the parties who are out there actively <coughs> agitating and organizing Their foreign policy around those principles, right? And they, 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 their foreign policy around those principles, and those are the powers that are hostile to the American order, and they are using that, and they are using that issue uh, in in order to advance their. uh, I I think that comes out in your book when you're talking about Nasser agitating against the
0: Iraqis, agitating against the Saudis, against the Jordanians, against the Jordanians, against the American order in many ways.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you. My book is a case in point.
0: Uh, uh,
3: another, this in my book, which is
0: available right over there. How, how much is that going for, Mike? I'm sure it's a huge book.
3: Bar- Discounted here for you. I'm sure it's a you. huge Look at these bargain, running away Mike now does. that we start talking about. this. <laughs> Lock the door. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: there's a gentleman, I believe, here who has a question. Hi. Uh, regarding your last point, uh, uh, my name's Aaron Friedman. Regarding your last point that, Hostility towards Israel is partially a function towards hostility towards the United States. Would that also mean that so long as there are actors in the Middle East hostile to the U.S., that not only is the Arab Israeli conflict not central, but also not tractable or is not solvable?
3: So I, I don't. Um i i'm not that's the we're on too abstract a level let me just give you a a specific example iran iran has no historically speaking iran has no reason to have a conflict with israel right there's no the shah had very good relations with, with with israel the iranians could wake up tomorrow morning and say do you know what i want to avoid the israel question uh, forget about whether I like Israel or don't like Israel. I can I can go about my business in the world and just avoid the Israel question just just fine. But they don't. They seek it out. They see they, they seek it out. Hezbollah Hezbollah has a pro Hezbollah is their primary proxy in the Arab world. They have a problem with Hezbollah in that it's a Shiite organization. So the way they the way they kind of launder uh Hezbollah as something more, or, or transform it into something more than just a, uh, than just a, a direct proxy of, of Iran, is through the Arab-Israeli conflict. So then Hezbollah <laughs> presents itself to the wider Arab world as a Lebanese nationalist and Arab nationalist organization fighting uh, fighting Zionism, and, and people kind of tend to forget that it's a proxy of Iran. Can, can I, I, I? Just a I was not surprised one bit when Hezbollah when, when Hezbollah turned, went into Syria, and started killing Sunnis for Iran. In uh, uh, in Syria, the dominant analysis of Hezbollah and Iran that preceded this war, which said that Hezbollah was created as a response to Israel and and so on and so forth, made it impossible to imagine that they would do what they did. I always knew that they were working for uh, that they were working for Iran to look after Iran's interests, whatever they were, and that the and that the Israel thing, the the is the hostility to Israel was the was the ladder that they were using to, to achieve those goals, or the, the path that they were using to achieve those goals, but not the goal in and of itself. I, I wanted to come back again to your book, and you cut me off. <laughs> I think that one of the points that you make
0: in that, and that one of the points you've made here is the nature of the region itself, where there has always been conflict. There is conflict now, and there will always be conflict. If you look, if you put Israel in that context, Israel has two peace treaties with two Sunni powers, there's no one else. There is no Sunni Shia peace treaty. There's no Alawi Sunni peace treaty. There's nothing like that. So when people talk about an Arab Israeli peace, this is actually this is actually uh, the anomaly
3: in a region. If I could take it back to my book, Lee, there's a there's a there's a this moment that Ray mentioned where the first the first point where Eisenhower's thinking really begins to switch. And he starts to see the idea of pursuing a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt as folly. And the reason his, the reason his thinking switches remarkably is because Nasser communicated that to him uh, almost directly. Now Eisenhower sends a special envoy secretly to, to Egypt, speaks with Nasser. And Nasser basically says to the guy, don't you get it? I have to have conflict with Israel, and I have to have conflict with the West, because my goal is to be the dominant power in the Arab world. And I'm using these conflicts to undermine to, my, un, to, to undermine my enemies. Now, Eisenhower does get it, and he decides from that moment on that, Eisen, that Nasser is a blackmailer, that any concession we give him, he'll pocket and then and then demand more. And there's no possibility of re- reaching a strategic alignment with him because, as as Walter said, our interests are fundamentally opposed. You, you do know you just gave away the whole book, right?
1: You no, gave I, away
3: the plot. I, but I didn't. I gave away the plot, but I didn't tell you about the sex and chocolate that's in the book. Okay, you have right. to you have to read okay, it to the end to fun. find that. All
0: right. um, another question, uh, gentleman here, and I, and I believe this is going to be the last question.
4: I thought you were going to name it Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Pray, Love.
5: I uh, Mr. Dren, uh, thank you. And I wanted to take a couple of steps back. Uh, you were talking about Russia and uh, Putin undermining the United States, essentially, through its in- influence in Iran and um, what you term is sort of a Russo-Iran alliance. Um, do you think, though, that what we might be doing is um, – Potentially limiting ourselves from a potential detente with Russia because, um, in the past, you know, Russia has had a sphere of influence in Iran, you know, a long time before the United States was even in the Middle East, and uh, you know, essentially, they were a colonialist power. Uh, within Iran a long time beforehand. So do you think that every single move by Russia, um, including uh, the installation of missiles, S-300 missiles, do you think that's an exact reflection on just, you know, uh, preventing our power from expanding in the, in the area? And we might be missing an opportunity with a new president-elect to uh, actually open up uh, relations again with Russia.
3: Um, I, no, I, I agree with what Walter said. That uh, quoting Lenin, that you you put your, you 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 thrust your bayonet forward, and if you if you encounter mush, then you continue going. If you encounter steel, then you then you stop. I think that's a basic Russian principle. Uh, I don't think Vladimir Putin ever, when he sat with his advisors and was looking at Syria, said, "How do we solve Syria? Can we solve it? Well, we can't solve Syria." He's always said, and the, the same goes for the Iranians. How do we exploit it? To maximum benefit, to to enhance our power in the region, and to and to weaken our rivals, which includes the United States, it, it, we're in a world now. It's not a zero-sum Cold War world. So Putin may not wake up every morning and say, "How do I undermine America today?" But undermining America is in his is on his priority list somewhere. And this is a guy who grew up as a KGB agent. I mean, this, he got it with his mother's milk. When, when 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 he sees the Americans in in discomfort, it gives him pleasure. There's, there's just you can't you can't grow up like that and not feel that way. So um, look, we could have. If you if if someone tells me that we didn't see the Russian intervention in Syria coming, I don't believe them. If we didn't see it coming then this is the greatest intelligence failure of my lifetime. And and the greatest. There are things that our intel may do better or worse. The one thing we do extremely well is see massive muscle movements by peer competitors. right? The whole system was created to do that. We had to see it coming. All we had to do to keep them out was to announce a no-fly zone before they put their forces in there. Right. We didn't do that. Now they have S-300s in there. Right. And they could, uh, that are, and, and they're not just causing they're not just deterring us. They are creating a massive amount of uh, problems for NATO's southern flank. They're also they're also the 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 the, the, the Russians are also testing NATO across the whole uh, uh, across the whole frontier. Um, and now they have set up a no fly zone on, on on Turkey's border. Uh, uh they've created through the refugees the refugees into europe are primarily from syria are primarily coming as a result of the actions of the russians and the iranians not isis i mean we popularly think oh isis created these refugees no the obliteration of sunni cities by russia and iran created those refugees which is creating enormous friction within europe has a big had a big role to play in brexit uh, and, and so on. If you're Vladimir Putin and you're sitting back and you're looking at all the discomfort that the Western alliance system has encountered because of what they've done in Syria, I think wouldn't it have been worth it to, to announce a no-fly zone and to put some and to put a minimal amount of forces in there to keep the Russians from coming in, in the, to begin with? Thank you to Hudson Institute. Thank you for coming.
0: Thank you, Walter and Ray and Mike. Congrats again on your thank book. you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time.